Welcome to this edition of the IFS Zooms In with me, Paul Johnson. Today I'm joined by my colleague Rob Joyce, Deputy Director here at the IFS, to talk about the UK welfare system and in particular the way that it has adapted or not adapted to COVID-19 and the new circumstances we face. There has been huge amount of uh, analysis of the furlough schemes that we've seen over the last seven or eight months, but rather less on the um, welfare system as it affects working age people. And actually, as we'll discover, we spend more, uh, significantly more on that than we do um, on the furlough scheme this year, and more than we have ever before, uh, partly as a result of changes that have been made to working age welfare this year, and partly because of the increased demands on it. Uh, so, Rob, um, why don't you kick off just by giving us some sense of the scale of social security, the social security system for people of working age and um, the extent to which spending has risen this year beyond uh, where it was previously? Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, well, let's start pre-crisis. So, As the crisis struck, we were spending about £100 billion per year on uh, cash transfers to to working age families, which I mean, there's a few ways of putting that into context. I guess I mean one way is that's about four percent of all of national income. Uh, perhaps a better way is that's actually more than we spend on on education, um, more than we spend on defence and policing in combination as well. So it, it's it's a very big uh, deal in that sense, and it supports a lot of. Uh, families. Uh, one way of giving a sense of that is that once our new mean-tested benefit is rolled out, and that's the universal credit that lots of people would have heard a lot about, which will encompass most of the existing system, it's expected that more than a quarter of all working age families at any one time will be receiving that. So that gives a sense of its, of its, of its breadth, if you like. Um, and even that underplays things a little bit in, in some ways, because actually um, thinking about who receives it at any one point in time is, is kind of a partial way of thinking about what the benefit system does. Uh, people's circumstances change and you know, they fluctuate over their lifetimes. Uh, actually, uh, we think that most working age families at some point uh, will draw on uh, even just the means tested bits of the, of the benefit system, the bits that are there for those on, on low incomes. Um, so that perhaps gives you some sense of the scale uh, pre-crisis and then perhaps we want perhaps we want to come on to, to how that's changed during the crisis so, so that, that that's very, that's very striking a quarter of all working age households um will be getting universal credit at any moment a lot more than that at some point and of course there are other benefits as well so the scale of this benefit system really is pretty substantial uh, but that was the world you were describing pre-covid 100 billion or so being spent um, but we're spending even more this year, aren't we? Uh, spending this year is going to be uh, more like 130 uh, billion pounds as opposed to the 100 billion pounds that I mentioned uh, pre-crisis. So, I mean, that is a huge change. That, that That is really, as so many of the economic time series that we've got used to seeing the last few months, you know, completely out of kilter with anything you normally see if you plot what happens over time. Um, it's a massive, massive change. Um, now, actually, I mean, most most of that is just because of the huge economic shock we've had, the huge shock to incomes, to the numbers of people, uh, either you know, losing jobs or seeing a, a, a fall in earnings. Uh, a little bit of it, I mean, it's still quite a significant 
amount in in normal kind of absolute terms, uh, something like uh, eight or nine billion pounds a year, is because on top of all of the economic turmoil, the government has has then chosen to make changes to make some um, at least uh, at the moment plan to be temporary uh, increases to benefits on top of you know the rise in spending that would that would have happened anyway because of because of falls in incomes. So you put all that together, yes, you've got a, a huge uh, huge increase in the amount that we're currently spending on benefits compared to just a few months ago. Okay, well, let's break that down into those two component parts. So part of it. Uh, is that we've got more people um, on benefits because they've lost their jobs or their earnings have um, have fallen. Do we know much about who those people are? Yes, I mean in, in broad terms, um, they they do tend to be people who were already not on especially high earnings, and that fits with what we know about the crisis as a whole. Um, you know, we see that for, for who's being. If you look at who's being furloughed, for example, and, and, and losing work, um, we see that you know it's disproportionately people who didn't tend to be earning that much in the first place. You know, and a lot of that is because of the very sector-specific nature of this crisis. It's hitting low-paying sectors essentially; uh, those are the most severely affected. Um, so that is the broad pattern. Nevertheless, of course, you know it's it's actually it's always the case um, that if you look at people who are on benefits and flowing onto benefits. They tend to come from, you know, the lower end of the labour market. That's just where people tend to be most vulnerable to, you know, periods of of, of unemployment or, or or negative economic shocks. So actually, if you there is some evidence at least that if you compare who's flowing onto benefits now compared to the normal set of people that would flow onto benefits, or even in a in a you know in a, in a typical recession or, or or outside of recessions as well, um, compared to that, they, they, they perhaps are somewhat. Um, higher educated, perhaps higher skilled um, than the sort of average set of people who, who flow on flow, flow onto benefits. So it's a slightly nuanced picture there. It's it's a it's a group coming from the lower earning sections of the of the labour market and of society, but perhaps perhaps slightly less so than in normal times or even in in a normal recession. Okay, well that makes some kind of sense. So the uh, in general, people who are most badly affected by this crisis are those in retail and hospitality and so on, low-skilled, um, often younger people. But there are clearly some people being affected um, who uh, were on higher earnings to start with, because not everyone uh, on higher earnings is by any means being protected from this extraordinary uh, extraordinary shock. So we've got a, a, a lot of extra money being spent just because, as it were, we've had a terrible um, economic shock, lots more people on lower pay and out of work. But as you said, the government has also... Um, explicitly increased the generosity of the um, of the benefit system, uh, and there have been three significant changes there. Perhaps you could take us through each of those briefly. Yeah, so a high level overview of what those three are. One is an increase to the standard allowance, um, if you like, in universal credit. So that's that's the bit that you get, irrespective of of extras you might get in light of having kids or housing costs of a sort of standard allowance in universal credit um, that has gone up by a thousand pounds a year or, or, or 20 pounds per week um, so that's that's something that will benefit very broadly you know anyone who has lost their job and is claiming universal credit as a result of that um, will get 20 pounds a week more um, than they would have done sorry rob can you just give us a quick sense of how much how how, how generous is universal credit i mean after that thousand pounds a year increase how much would uh single person, say, be be getting if they are out of work? 
Yeah. Okay. Let's go into that a bit more. So, uh, I mean, that's you, you, the way you phrase the question is absolutely the relevant way to phrase it because um, if if all you are entitled to is essentially the standard bit of, of, of benefits, you know, because you don't have kids, say, and you don't claim support for housing costs, um, then uh, this is quite a big deal. So, to take an example. Um, single childless homeowner, so not claiming support for kids, not claiming support for rent, um, who is out of paid work, this equates to about 20% of their income, this this increase that we've seen. Um, Now, if you're um, a family with kids, say, already getting um, more than that, then it's a smaller proportion of of your income. On average, if you you, to give a sense of scale kind of overall, um, on average, it's cur- this policy is currently benefiting about 4 million families by an average of about 13% of, of, of their income. So it's a boost on average of about 13% to benefit entitlements. But it's a lot more than that, as you hint at, for certain kinds of families. So that's, um, so that's a, quite a big increase in the generosity of universal credit, but from a, for, certainly for some kinds of families uh, of, from a very low base we're talking less than 100 pounds a week that you're supposed to live on if you're a single well significantly less than 100 pounds a week you're supposed to live on if you're a uh, a single um person yeah which and i'll I, excited to come in on that actually paul as well because what one thing i could have said there is is you know thinking about how generous that is um uh, you can obviously compare us to other countries as another way of looking at it um and it is it is a you know by by most developed country standards those kinds of amounts are quite minimalist you know really as as, as a sort of safety net um if you look across the oecd uh that is a significantly you know if if you take someone on a typical level of earnings or a typical sort of level of earnings towards the bottom of the labor market um you know the kind of the amount of income that is being replaced uh, by the benefit system for these kinds of families is, is typically a much lower fraction in the UK than it than it is uh, in most in most countries. So we we do have uh, a, a quite a in some ways quite a puny safety net, particularly for some kinds of families. Actually, particularly for those without children uh, who haven't really seen um, any increase in benefits in the UK for decades until until this crisis. So that the level of the safety net for those kinds of families has drifted further and further behind. The level of earnings that people are getting in work. Yeah, that's quite a remarkable thing. We've had pretty much 50 years of no increase beyond inflation um, for childless people, at least, in the value of these benefits, as over a period of which, of course, earnings have more than doubled. So the gap between someone in work and someone out of work has grown a lot, which makes this increase even more remarkable. I mean, it's sort of it's, that one moment of increase in the generosity of universal credit is bigger than all of the changes over the last 50 years for for single people. That's not true for people with children where there were clearly big increases, particularly under the last uh, Labour government, but a a really remarkable um, change in some ways. And one of the big questions for the government, of course, is are they going to keep that in place um, after next March? Because this was intended as a one-off, one-year temporary increase. And I guess one of the curiosities in a way is I think politically it's going to be difficult to say, well, look, we're going to cut your benefits again by £20 a week. Uh, And yet um, to almost, as it were, accidentally um, have this really big increase in the permanent, in permanent generosity would be, would be rather strange as well. 
Yeah, and it, it's about it's about five and a half billion pounds a year that this temporary increase is is is, is costing. And you know, one way of thinking about it, I suppose, you know, if this did become an accidental permanent change, is that you know before the crisis there were already lots of debates about. Um, whether universal credit should be expanded in generosity. And there are many ways you could do that. And there are a lot of debates about whether it should be done in a rather different way. For example, um, you know, giving more support to those who are in work to sharpen up uh, the rewards, the financial rewards for people uh, in work. And, you know, it may well be that, you know, in, in the longer term, if the government, even if the government did want to spend another six billion or so a year on universal credit, that it would, that it would have chosen to do it in a somewhat different way from what it did as a temporary measure um, in the crisis. I, I guess thinking a little shorter term, and it seems to me there's a, there is a pretty strong case for at least saying that, that this will, um, that, this, that this temporary increase will, will carry on for a bit longer. I guess the reason I say that is because, you know, I mean, ideally the kind of level of benefits, the level of the safety net in April would depend on a number of factors as, as ever, um, including things like um, how many uh, how many jobs are actually available, you know, because that that affects various things, including how we should think about people, you know caring about how much incentive people have to find work. I mean, that doesn't make much sense if there isn't any work anyway. Um, so we, you know, ideally, we'd want to take into account all of these factors, which are about what's happening in the wider economy, and one can at the moment paint you know vastly different pictures for what that might look like in April. Um, uh, you know, depending on whether we're moving into the spring and the virus seems to be behaving itself much like it did over the summer and there's a vaccine on the horizon versus, you know, things looking more like they do right now. Um, but I don't really think it's uh, a great idea for the government to just wait until the last minute before deciding what it's going to do, because, you know, this is this is people's income. We've just been talking about and if for some people this is a very large fraction of, of their income. There's obvious benefits to providing a bit more stability and certainty. So I think I think it will probably be rightly tempting to just say that at least for now that it's going to be extended. Um, it's difficult, I think, to leave that kind of thing really to the last minute. And that's one of the difficulties that, of course, families on these benefits are facing. They they don't know at the moment really whether these uh, whether they'll be cut um, in the spring. Um, the uh, but that that that's the biggest of the changes to the benefit system that we've seen. Um, there's been one other change to universal credit, which we'll come on to in a moment. Perhaps it's worth briefly, though, saying what's happened to this thing called local housing allowance, which is um, designed to help people with their rent payments, because that, that, that was made more generous as well, wasn't it? Well, it's best there probably to start with what we were doing just before the crisis. Uh, in the years before the crisis, um, the link between the amount you could claim from the state in order to support you with the cost of housing and the actual level of cost of housing in the area where you lived had been had been broken. If you go back to 2012, that link was, was very, very clear. Uh, the amount that you could claim if you were a private sector tenant uh, in support was equal to, it was capped by the 30th percentile of local rents uh, in the relevant size of property, the size of property that was deemed relevant for your kind of family. So the principle was the state will pay for you uh, essentially to be able to afford the bottom 30% of properties in your, in your area of the relevant size. After 2012, what we did is we took all those locally varying caps, which were related to 
the what were at the time current levels of rent in the in different areas, and we stopped linking them to local rents. Uh, we increased them first in line with prices, and then just by one percent a year across the board, and then by zero percent a year across the board for the most part. So. On average, they fell behind the the 30th percentile of rent levels, but they also did so in a way that varied across areas, depending on how quickly rents were growing. In an area where rents were growing really fast, the amount of support you could claim for your rent was was falling way, way behind the actual cost of housing, and, and less so, you know, vice versa in areas where, where there was very little um, rent growth. So what was happening was that the system was becoming less and less generous relative to the actual cost of housing, but it was also doing so in a, in a fairly arbitrary way across different parts of the country as well, um, because, you know, for example, you know, last year there were areas that had higher rent levels than other areas, but still had but where you could still claim less in support for housing simply because these different housing benefit caps were not based on current rent levels in different areas. They were based on historical rent levels. What we've done during the crisis is basically unwind all of that. It's like we've gone back to 2012 where now the amount that you can claim is once again capped simply by the 30th percentile of current rents in your area. So we've really unwound a whole bunch of cuts, increasing the generosity of the system uh, on average for sure, and also in a very real sense, re-rationalising a little bit, treating different areas in a somewhat more rational way, depending on what their actual current housing costs are rather than rather than their historical ones. It seems inconceivable, doesn't it, that we'll return to where we were last year. The idea that when we get to 2021, we'll decide to stop uh, releasing housing benefit payments to current rents and start relating them back to where rents were in 2011. We're surely not going to do that, at least. Yeah, exactly. I think that's right. And of course, that's kind of a useful thought experiment, isn't it? Because that's a kind of another way of saying it was a bit silly in the first place. You know, it, in general, if you've got a policy and you think, if I design this from scratch, would it be totally different? And the answer is yes, it's probably probably not a great policy in the first place. And uh, in a way, uh, this crisis has perhaps highlighted that. But no, I think you're right. It would look particularly odd to go back to where we were. <laughs> That's a very good way of um, a very good way of putting it, and and then there's a third. Um, actually, is worth just um, just saying on that housing benefit point that again, this is incredibly important because we spend over twenty billion pounds a year um, on housing benefits. So the, the, these are uh, these are very very large sums um, on just one aspect of the benefit system. Um, but let's move on to the third uh, change that was made earlier in the year, and that was a change to the way in which uh, the self-employed are provided with benefits through the universal credit system. And again, um, a very important group. I mean, I think there are more than 4 million um, self-employed uh, in the UK at, at the moment, uh, and substantial numbers of them uh, on, um, on means-tested benefits. Uh, but perhaps you could just explain what happened to universal credit as it affects the self-employed. Yeah, of course. And I think, again, the easiest way is to start with, with what things looked like before the crisis. So we, we had this policy for the self-employed who were claiming means-tested benefits, so the low-income self-employed broadly, um, such that if their income was really very low, we would basically ignore that for the purposes of calculating how much they are entitled to in benefits. Um, and instead, we would treat them as though they were earning what they would be earning if they were an employee on the minimum wage. That was essentially the 
the principle. So the idea being that if, in fact, you are self-employed and earning less than that, um, you're not sort of you're you're not um, compensated by the benefit system to the degree that you would be um, uh, without this without this policy, because you're treated as though your income is actually higher. Um, and there, I mean, there are a few reasons for this. I think one one, one of them, I think, it was actually just a concern about fraud. I mean, it's harder; it is harder to monitor self-employed incomes. But there was a kind of principle underlying it, uh, I guess, as well that you know, the idea being if you could, if you could just go and be an employee and earn more, um, you know, why should the state um, essentially pay for you to to, to earn less than that? Um, if, if that's a kind of choice you're making. And of course, the issue of choice is something we'll, we'll come back to here and, and is, is key. Um, but that's how the system did work. And so what's happened in the crisis is that that so-called minimum income floor, the assumed amount that you're sort of treated as though you are earning, even if you're not, that's been abolished. So now, you know, if you are, if you are self-employed and you, and you are making next to nothing, um, you get benefits on that basis, essentially the same as you, pretty much the same as you'd get if you were just unemployed. Um, and that, whereas that was not actually true uh, before the crisis. And as we speak, we're expecting uh, this policy to be reversed as of Friday the 13th um, of November, although there, by the time this is broadcast, of course, the government may have changed its, um, changed its policy. And I think what I take from what you're saying is that uh, whilst there is in the long run a pretty good case for having something like the minimum income floor because you want to prevent fraud and you want to prevent people um, uh, saying they're self-employed as a way of avoiding um, looking for work requirements uh, or uh, not looking or, or not getting the kind of job that they could. So in the long run, there is a case for something like the minimum income floor, but in the short run, given that there aren't really any jobs around and if there was a case for the minimum making this change in April, there's still a case now it should probably continue to be suspended after the 13th of November, but reinstated perhaps next April or whenever the, whenever the um, pandemic finally recedes. Yeah, I think I, I would probably agree with that. I mean, I think, I think, you know, longer term, there is, as you say, some case for something of this form, something like a minimum income floor. I think you know, if we were getting into the weeds, which I suggest we don't, there are, there are some changes we would suggest making to it. Um, but but yes, whereas shorter term, as you say, the issues seem very different. Um, it's probably, you know, when there are no, <laughs> to take the extreme example to make the point, you know, if there are just no employee vacancies, um, then really, you know, people who are self-employed and making nothing, it, it makes more sense to think of them like the unemployed, really, because the point is there just isn't a way for them to go and earn more at that at that moment and so you would really want the benefit system to treat them more like the unemployed not not like an employee who's earning the minimum wage um so yeah if there was a case for suspending this before there's a i think there's a very good case now and particularly given we're going back into into a um into a second um lockdown i, I mean i think there is a there is a slightly broader, interesting and important issue here about the self-employed that, that to some extent, you know, applies even in normal times. We've actually, colleagues of, of ours have done some work on this recently, and I think it's going to be published quite shortly. You know, even in normal times, it's legitimate and, and, and important to ask, you know, for those people who are self-employed and not earning much, um, you know, who, who are they and why, why are they not earning much and what, what is their situation? Um 
And, you know, I think even in normal times, it's not accurate to think of all of those people as people who are just, you know, just making a choice to be self-employed because they like it. You know, they could go and be an employee and earn more. Um, there's actually quite good evidence that even in normal times, some significant fraction of the self-employed, the low-income self-employed, are in that situation because it is like a kind of intermediate status, really, between unemployment and employment. You know, some of these people are people who, it seems, if there were the opportunities there, would be in would be in traditional employment, and, and because they're not there they're in low-income self-employment. So I think that is that does complicate how we should think about policies like the minimum income floor, even in the longer term. Um, but clearly in a recession, we're kind of in an extreme example of that, where kind of a very high fraction of the low-income self-employed are probably in that kind of situation where it's really not a matter of uh, of choice as to, as, to, as to whether they could just hop into a better paying employee job. So one of the things clearly the government has done over the last seven or eight months has been introduced this furlough system, which provides very high uh, replacement rates for people who are laid off. They get 80% of their previous salary, which is incredibly different to what the working age uh, social security system has done up till now, where we have a really quite miserly system. If you lose your job, you get this very basic means-tested benefit, which bears no relation to your previous earnings and anyone on average earnings or above would see a very sharp drop in their living standards. And that's very different, actually, to what many other, particularly Western European countries, do where they have the so-called social insurance systems, uh, which mean that if you lose your job, at least for a period of time, you can get quite high replacement rates, quite high fractions of your previous earnings just through uh, their benefit um, system. Now, one option, one thing you might think government would therefore be thinking about is whether our current benefit system is fit for purpose and whether we shouldn't move towards one of these systems where if you do lose your job, uh, you do get um, some insurance through the state. So you get a reasonable fraction of your previous income rather than seeing it slashed by 60, 70, 80, even 90 percent uh, as soon as you uh, lose that job. So, Rob, do you think do you, do, you, do you think there are attractions to moving in that direction or is that um, really somewhat utopian thinking given where we start? Well, I, probably yes and yes, actually. Um, I mean, I think there are. So I think there are attractions um, in principle. Um, what what some of these European countries have is in many ways um, you know, very advantageous, as you said, if you have a system which is a, essentially is able not just to provide a kind of minimalist absolute floor on your income, but to actually ensure you in a more meaningful way against a shock by by essentially preserving your something like your previous position um, in society. You know, so it preserve you know preserving your ability to meet the kind of spending commitments that you had taken on in light of your previous income, you know, your mortgage and that kind of thing. Um, then, you know, a system like some of the continental ones is, 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 is clearly better set up for meeting that kind of challenge than ours, where essentially what you get if you fall out of work is this sort of fairly minimalist absolute floor, and it bears very little relation to, or normally no relation, to what you were earning before. Um, so I think there are certainly appeals, and there are other appeals as well, by the way, including, I think, perhaps sort of uh, 
kind of political political economy advantages that people often talk about of you know a system like that perhaps it's, it's easier to get everyone feeling bought into the system if they all feel like it, it can provide them with some genuine insurance um uh in in times of in times of, of hardship and, and you know when they're making social security contributions they, they feel like they might get some of that back in a, in a meaningful way later so uh, so yes i do think there are appeals i mean it, before we talk about the practical um issues involved of, of moving towards any kind of system like that i mean i should say as well that there are just i mean inevitably trade-offs here too there are downside certainly of relying solely on that kind of system because you know in the end um clearly we do want an actual safety net of some kind for people irrespective of what they've done in the past um you know it's always the case it's always going to be the case that there are people who we want to support because they are in clear need even if they haven't um paid into the system in the past or over some particular period uh in the past and so there's always a temptation, at the very least, and other countries do this, of course, to top up um, a, a sort of contributory system with um, something more like what dominates our system, which is just a means-tested system where if you are on a low income now, we don't really ask any questions or care about what you've done in the past. We just give you an amount of money to, to, to try to top your income up to a, to a certain level. So I think you can never get around the desire to want to do that to some degree um, as well. Um, so that's how I would see the, the, the issues in terms of the, the pros and cons, if you like, of, of con contributory systems. But perhaps we should talk about how one would actually get there as well, because that's quite complicated. We did try and bring in earnings-related benefits in the 1970s. And we actually had an earnings-related unemployment benefit and an earnings-related invalidity benefit, as well as an earnings-related pension. But they got um, uh, they, they, they got but they were got rid of essentially under the Conservative government after 1979. Really, I think because of these, uh, this sense that um, if all you wanted to do was give people just enough to live on when they were unemployed or out of work, then why spend money or more money on people who used to be higher earners? Which I think is really the the, the point you're driving at in terms of the difficulty yeah. of making this thing last over time. Because whilst you might think this makes sense as a way of constructing a system if you're coming in as a chancellor and you're seeing that you're giving money to um, you know formally highly paid people who don't particularly need it to manage and you could just turn it into a means tested system then the temptation is always to move in that direction that's certainly a temptation uh, to which we have fallen foul um, over the last 50 years. I think another point to, to, to make there is you know what happens when society changes um, you know one of the reasons why we moved away or what we move towards more and more means testing is because, you know, new demographic groups, say, popped up in much greater numbers, like like single parents, for example, who uh, hadn't made uh, the contributions that would have given them a lot of entitlement under a contributory system, but we wanted to support them. And unless you can anticipate all of those kind of changes in advance, when you set up a, a contributory system, when you say, People are going to pay X percent in when they're in work. And then as a result, they'll get X percent if they fall out of work. Unless you can anticipate all the changes that are going to happen in the future, which are going to you know, change the proportion of people who fall out of work and need support, for example, then uh, the system won't, won't continue to, to, to support the people you really want to support and it won't continue to, to pay for itself. And so it'll, it'll start getting unpicked, I think, as a result of, of, of that. So I think it is very difficult to... Um, 
to sustain it, particularly in a sort of fast-moving society, I guess. Yeah, and I think uh, you know, it, 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 we, we are always uh, prisoners of, of, of history and uh, uh, looking at other countries' experiences might show us uh, something that works better than what we've got, but it doesn't necessarily mean we can get from here to there. Uh, and I think it probably also reflects differences in, um, I don't know if national character is the right word, but uh, political institutions and expectations uh, about the levels of, uh, to use a continental phrase, social solidarity uh, that people are willing to um, uh, engage in. And those are the sorts of things that are only built over significant periods of time. They're not things that can be imposed uh, from above. But anyway, we've wandered um, far and wide in this uh, particular podcast from the details of the uh, minimum income floor for the self-employed to the uh, to the huge um, views across uh, different um, social security systems and the pros and cons of means testing. Uh, as against social insurance uh, systems. We could spend hours more on any of that, but I think probably uh, for our listeners, it's time that we wrapped up. Uh, we will no doubt come back to some of these issues uh, in future editions. Um, if you did enjoy this episode, please do hit subscribe and rate us. And you can always stay on top of our latest work by visiting www.ifs.org.uk. Stay well, and we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Thank you.